Welcome to the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is where accomplishment and harmony coexist. Now, here's your host and Spa Life curator, Diane Halfman. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of the Live Your Spa Life Show. Spa life is a lifestyle that accepts that accomplishment and harmony coexist. The spa and spa life, the SPA, is for seek power always, to do your bigger work in the world. I am so inspired by our next guest, Christy Wells. She is the CEO and co-founder of Safe House Project. She's also wife to 19-year Navy pilot, thank your family for our service, and mom to three vivacious kiddos and an ardent defender of the vulnerable. Christy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here, Diane. Uh, Well, we share a passion about helping survivors and having awareness, and we'd love for you to start with, how is it that you came on this path? Yeah, this is an issue that I have known about since I was 16 years old. I saw it for the first time on a missions trip to Costa Rica, and I saw children as young as six being sold into the commercial sex trade, and I came back from that with my heart on fire. I'd seen something I, I couldn't unsee. But I thought it only existed internationally. And in 2017, a good friend of mine went to go visit and work in South Africa. He was a hip-hop artist or is a hip-hop artist and went over there to serve some kiddos in a orphan care center in South Africa and saw a need to build up a safe house to protect kids at risk of trafficking. And at that point, he came back, his heart on fire. He wanted to do something, wanted to raise money to build the safe house and People kept saying, what are you going to do domestically? And really didn't have a solid answer for that. And he and I were working together on this album launch. I was helping on the PR side. And my co-founder, Brittany Dunn, had understood and seen sex trafficking domestically and understood what it looked like a lot more. And that's when our hearts and our attention really turned towards identifying the issue in the United States and understanding where the gaps were. And what we trying to figure out what we as military spouses, as corporate America uh, gals, what we could do to actually make a difference. And that's when we saw the issue as it is, saw the specific need and determined what we were going to do to make an impact with State House Project. Love this so much. You know, it's interesting that both of you have had experiences where you had some awareness about what was happening. And part of what you do at Safe House is education and helping people become more aware. And it's still shocking to me this day that there's only like 1% around victim identification. Why do you think that number is so low? And what are you guys doing to expand that awareness? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the biggest issue and the reason it is so low is really two things. One is people misunderstand what trafficking looks like in America. They think that you are looking for the drugged, illegal alien chained in a basement, or they think trafficking means moving a person. So they don't understand that a child can be sold for sex by a family member. They're not moving across boundaries. They're not missing. It's not like the movie Taken. No, Liam Neeson is not going out looking for them. It is child sexual exploitation that's being done in the homes. And 40% of trafficking victims are trafficked by a family member. And so people don't understand that. And so they're not looking for it. And the other thing is that it's mislabeled. And so for so long, we've known child sexual abuse has existed. But many times, if a child is taken into child protective services, 
taken protected by the law at some level, it's because they believe that that child was simply being abused in the home, not to say that that is not horrific enough, but they missed that there was a commercial element to it. They missed that the child was being sold by sex by that family to somebody outside or that child sexual abuse was now being recorded and distributed online as pornography. They missed that there is a commercial element. And so it's being mislabeled it's being misidentified or people just don't know what to look for. Right. And that's a shock, I'm sure, for a lot of people listening, right? Especially if you come from a home where you've not experienced that or you don't know anyone or you don't know that you don't know, right? Because people don't talk about it. What do you think it's going to take to change the fabric of of so many families that have this ingrained? You know, I've talked to a lot of survivors where when growing up, when this was happening to them, it was part of their growth experience of what their home looked like, right? And so those children didn't necessarily know any different. They didn't even know that what was happening in their family was wrong or that it shouldn't be happening. So when there's all this misinformation and some victims actually don't even realize that this is happening to them till something happens later on as an adult or something along those lines, how do we break up some of these long-term patterns? Absolutely. I think the first thing is identification of those who are currently being victimized. You asked the question a second ago of what are we doing to change the current statistic on victim identification? Our team trains law enforcement, military, first responders as kind of one group. We train corporations how to identify trafficking and disrupt the demand. But we have a community-based training called OnWatch. And that is really an incredible training, not because we did it, but because it's actually survivor-informed, survivor-written, where we really wanted to help people understand what trafficking looks like in America, what it looks like in their communities. The survivors shared their stories and said, this is what happened to me. And it's less about what happened to them behind closed doors, but more about what was happening and how those in their lives, the teachers, the coaches, the parents sometimes could have seen those signs and indicators and could have responded. And so OnWatch is a great tool for community members to have to identify trafficked individuals. And so I believe that the first step to breaking that cycle of violence is identifying those who are currently being victimized. They have to be pulled out. And that's going to take everybody on watch. Beyond that, I believe that they need restorative care. There are tremendous levels of trauma that have been inflicted on them, sometimes since infancy. And to your point, they believe it's normal. And so they need to have therapy for the trauma that they've endured. They need to have understand how to set up their own healthy boundaries, their own healthy relationships, understand what those actually look like. And that identification and treatment, I believe, are the things that are going to keep them from being the next abusers. Because that's what we see is the cycle of violence where a victim then becomes an abuser. And those just continue on and on. And addressing both of those is how we're going to at least start putting an end to this. Right, right. And this is not just a one and done. I mean, 80% of those rescued end up back on the street. So what are some of the things to interrupt? You know, here you feel like, yay, somebody off the street, right, a survivor, and then they're back out there again. What are some of the patterns or some of the retraining or things that happen that have better odds for them not to get back on the street? Sure. So without a safe place to go once they're rescued or once they leave that life, 
80% to your point will end up back in traffickers' hands. But the key to that is without a safe place to go. So when a survivor has restorative care opportunities, we are drastically reducing their recidivism by about 80%. The problem is when we began Safe House Project in 2018, we realized that there were only 100 beds in restorative care homes for minors in the United States. That's, That's it. incredible. Only 100 beds. And so we are here, part of our organization's objective is to increase the number of beds in restorative care homes across America, increase the number of opportunities. So we've added 134 beds to the national landscape since we launched. But a bed isn't just a bed. A restorative care opportunity is a place where they are receiving education and therapy and multiple modalities of therapy. So sometimes you've got a child who won't speak but they'll do art. And that is the thing that starts to bring them to life, that starts breaking through those emotional barriers that keep them from being able to process their trauma. So art therapy, equine therapy, animal therapy, yoga therapy, counseling, group counseling, family counseling, those are kind of the wraparound services from a therapy standpoint that we want to see in restorative care. But then again, education, job skills training, if it's for girls who are 16, 17, or over the age of 18, having economic empowerment is critical to give them the belief that they can go out there and they can do something other than being a commodity. Because when you've been sold, and that's all you've ever been told that you are worth, going back out onto the streets and being told, you're free, good luck, (laughs) doesn't that doesn't mean they're free. We have to equip them to know who they are, to know what their dreams are, to know how to attain those, give them the skill sets to at least start them on that path and give them the therapy to make sure that their setbacks are not complete derailment, but that there's something that is, okay, I've been triggered. I need to learn how to process through this and giving them those emotional tools to be able to move forward. Right, right. Well, speaking of of having the tools, you know, again, I look at not just the person who's serving in the service as your husband, but as the family, because there is so much that a family has to do to support that person. And, you know, there's so much moving. You talk about having the adaptability of moving around, changing friends, changing schools. There's so much in that. Talk about how all of those changes and all those things that you needed to adapt to in being a military spouse has equipped you to be part of Safe House. It's a great question. We have really been fortunate to have an incredible network of family and friends coast to coast. I always say military spouses are some of the most highly educated, unemployed (laughs) group of um, individuals out there. And so when we built Safe House Project, we had the vision of building a national organization. And we wanted to be able to support safe houses coast to coast, to increase education coast to coast. And so having that network of military spouses is what's really equipped us to be able to do that. But the other thing is we have constantly, and I say we, myself and Brittany, my co-founder, but we have constantly been put in a place of having to set up shop again, having to blaze our own path, having to make new contacts. And so when I was a little girl, I moved around a good bit as well. And my mom would always teach me to walk up to somebody and say, hi, I'm Christy. Would you like to be my friend? 
and, and to do it with courage and fearlessly. And so as we've been building this organization, we've had to blaze our own path. There was nothing like this out there. And that was the reason we started this organization. And so being courageous, taking those steps out, making new friends, building new relationships and doing that with confidence was a skill I learned as a military spouse. And it's a skill that I still see myself using as we build Safe House Project. So let's talk about some of those tools that you use to consciously create your life, right? You know, design, there's there's certain ways to doing things. Talk about having a God-sized vision and seeking to understand before you respond. Yes. So we have a God-sized vision of building the largest national anti-trafficking organization, not for the sake of us and for our glory, but for the sake of this issue deserves to have a huge national champion advocating and a huge group of people advocating to eradicate slavery. We want to see a safe house network in every state. We want to see 6 million people trained to identify the signs and indicators of trafficking in the next five years. We want to see 250 corporations engaged in the fight to disrupt the demand. And so we understand that to do that, it takes intentionality. It takes focus. It takes deliberation. It takes waking up every single day and saying, did I do something to point to any or all of those objectives today? Did I continue to push forward even in the face of adversity? And so as we have shepherded that God-sized vision, we have had to steward our time, our talents, our intention very carefully to make sure that every meeting we go into, every conversation we have is taking advantage of the opportunities that we've been given to further combat this issue. Yes, uh, this is so great. And I hope that our listeners, you know, a lot who are leaders and entrepreneurs and for them to see that no matter what your mission is, you have to have that intentionality. You have to have a strategy. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, you know, your life strategy, because you can't say yes to everything. There has to be some boundaries. There has to be something that you use as your meter as you walk along a path, both in your personal life and in your business. And it's important to have, or I'd love for you to share about the importance of having a life strategy. Absolutely. I think you're talking about my life strategy. And for me, it is constantly figuring out what is true north. It is, for me, on a personal level, I can say, what is the direction that God has pointed me to? And am I on track? And it's a constant navigation check to say, am I on track or am I one degree off? And being very intentional to the point of what is every single meeting, every single conversation pointing towards when it pertains to safe house. What is my objective? What is my true north? And am I doing exactly what I need to be doing to stay true north? Because it's easy in life or in nonprofit world or in business to get mission creep. And mission creep, in my opinion, takes you one degree off or two degrees off. And that is fine in the short term, but that extrapolated over time and space is going to land you a very different place. And so for us, it is constantly checking 
our actions, our intention against what is our true north and are we on track? Oh, I love that mission creep, you know, I mean, I think if people just looked at that for their business, like, are they in their lane, right? Are they right. focusing on the thing that they're here to solve? Is it involving their strengths that they have and constantly having that as a gauge to see where you're at? And I think being able to just check in with yourself and see what that is, is important and to see what barriers may be coming up and how you move past those I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of barriers that come up. And so I'd love for you to share, like, what are some of the things that you do to get past fear in this journey? For me, it's a lot about my why. Mm -hmm. My why is the thing that drives me. There are plenty of times where I can be fearful or I can look at something and say, there's no way this corporation is going to engage in the fight against trafficking. It's too big of a corporation. They're, it's too scary of a risk to take. First of all, we've learned to fail fast and fail forward and to not be afraid to go after opportunities. But if there's something that does make me stop in my tracks, that does make me fearful, I have to keep my purpose in mind. My purpose is to see the captive set free. And there recently... Brittany and I were running a Marine Corps marathon. And as we were running, it was pouring down rain. Torrential downpour. Everybody who ran the marathon that year called it the DC Swim Club. But we were running and feeling pretty bad for ourselves somewhere around mile 17. And this guy starts running next to me and he's a dual amputee. And he's booking it. And in the middle of the race, he falls. Both legs essentially go out from under him and he falls, he falls hard. And I think, Oh my gosh, he's done. Like there's no way he's going to pick himself up and two guys come and they pick him up and he keeps going. And it was that moment that I looked at him and thought my excuse is invalid. Anything that I have in my head that tells me I can't keep going is completely invalid because he's willing to fight and push through and keep going. And so I see the survivors as him somebody who has got grit, somebody who is willing to keep running. And this is a race that I am in with them, that Brittany and I are in with them. And if they are willing to push forward another day, and if they are willing to conquer their fears and they are willing to take steps into things that scare them, stabilization scares them. People who love them scare them. And if we say, you know what, you've got to face those fears and you've got to keep going because you are worth it, then I have to remember that when I get scared or I get intimidated by something and I have to say, if I'm going to give them that advice, I have to be willing to heed it myself. Mm -hmm. That my excuse is invalid to be afraid and they're worth it. Right. Well, and Christy, I love this aspect of, you know, no matter where you are in your journey and we can look to what are the things or what's the reasons we are to get past things? How can we expand beyond where we are now? And I love how you're speaking about the survivors of their resilience and their grit and just the amazing determination to make decisions to change their life. Because people can look and go, well, that's a bad experience and can't relate to it. But to change everything of what you know, whether it's good or bad, and to do something different, that takes guts, that takes that grit, that takes doing something different. And that is something that we all can emulate and look at. And one of the things I love to, to share is that we can all have a victim experience. 
but it's very different to identify yourself as a victim. And I know that a lot of survivors are very adamant about not being labeled as a victim, that they want to overcome that. They want to have a different story. They want to be something in a different way. And so I love that you you talk about those type of characteristics because that's what we want them to live into, right? And that's what we want to live into ourselves is to have those kind of aspects. So it's good to see when there are wins and there are those things happening. And just like any type of mission or journey that you're on, there are going to be high days and low days. There's going to be times where it's frustrating or disempowering. Can you share some of, of that aspects where you find like you're you're pushing through? Some of the things that are are maybe feel like a setback and you're you're coming with some workarounds. Yeah, absolutely. When we began, our objective was to elevate education and to raise money to build up safe houses. And so we thought if we build up the safe houses, then the survivors are gonna have places to go. And what we started realizing was that it wasn't fitting that way. It wasn't working. And we saw gaps in placement in survivors not having opportunities to reach out to an organization to advocate for them to figure out where they needed to go. And it was really frustrating. And we have seen plenty of things in this industry that have made us frustrated that you just realize that there's a lot of gaps. Right. And, and when you're referring to it wasn't working, what are you specifically talking about? Sorry. The safe houses were staying with beds open and survivors weren't finding places to go. So there was a disconnect in the communication where us just simply elevating the number of beds wasn't necessarily improving the communication from the survivors in order to get placed into the safe houses. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't a, if you build it, they will come. It was, okay, you're going to build it, but how are you going to bridge those communication gaps? And so for us, that was very frustrating, Uh, but we have learn to adapt and we have learned to actually really work to place survivors quickly. And so last year we placed about 50 survivors into safe houses by working to understand the safe houses and their individual strengths and the survivors and their individual needs and to get them placed. And so sometimes our frustrations have come from seeing gaps in the industry, but what we've also realized is that we have strengths. And so sometimes those Gaps are opportunities for additional service, and we have to use our strengths for service. Yeah. Oh, it's so important to see. I mean, because you're right, you could just be like, okay, it's built, you know, go after it. But you don't think about like, how are they going to hear about it or who's going to guide them there or what all these other things. And so, and this is so important on our journey to look at is we can have a vision of what we think it's going to look like, right? And then you're getting input from the survivors themselves by the different things that are in place or not in place now. And so this is part of that, you know, you have to kind of tweak it and you have to see like, as you're moving forward, there's an evolution in having that happen, which reminds me, one of the things I love to ask my guests, because talking about creating things that support you, you know, we have different experiences in our home, you know, how we feel in our bedroom versus our kitchen or our living room. What is your favorite room in your home and why? My favorite room in my home, it's my kitchen. We are very intentional about how we build our life. And how to the point of intentionality for me, building community is a huge part of what we do as a family. And for me, that always involves building community in the kitchen. I have three kids and I'm 
pretty certain I feed the neighborhood on a regular basis to at least the neighborhood kids. And we are really intentional about inviting other kids in, making sure that we are a safe house, that we are a safe place. And I feel like so much of that for us begins in the kitchen. It's the time that the kids come in. Yesterday was the snow day here. I had 10, 15 kids in my house and all of them have come to say, well, you know, your kids aren't just our friends. You're our friend. And so I get an opportunity to engage with these kids. And actually in the process of it, yesterday, one of the moms reached out to me and was very thankful that we were reaching out and supporting her son and loving on him. And she found out what I did. And she said, I'm a survivor of trafficking. And so by building a safe place for her son to come in and engage because we build community in our kitchen, we were able to reach out and support another survivor who never had that kind of environment for herself growing up. Right. Oh, I love that so much. It reminds me in growing up when we'd have half days at school and my mom would always say, if the kids can fit in the car, and this was before they really enforced a lot of seatbelt laws where you can just <laughs> stack up in there however you want, they could come home with us and be able to hang out and have lunch and, and have that. And I think it's so important to realize that, you know, we are a larger community. And when we look at being able to see what is safe and what are we creating and to be that example and to have that and how great for your kids to see like, hey, it's not just about our nuclear family. It's about the greater part of the world. And so I love that that you're creating that. And that's one of the things that my great memories that I remember as well is who are we including in some of this and what are some of the reasons and things behind that? So I know that our listeners are going to want to stay in contact with you. They're going to want to find out more about Safe House. How can they do that? Absolutely. Well, they can go on to our website at safehouseproject.org. We would love for you to take the training at iamonwatch.org. That is a community-based training platform that you can learn how to spot and report trafficking where you live, work, and play. And we have our social media on Facebook and Instagram at Safe House Project. Perfect. Oh, I love that. Listeners, please go and do that. You know, we can't make these changes one off here and there. It's going to take the whole global community to have the awareness, to know when they're seeing something and to actually be able to do something about it. So definitely get yourself educated, get involved, be part of that greater community. And finally, Christy, our theme this year is being a force for good. How are you being a force for good? We are eradicating child sex slavery in America. And we are serving survivors one heart at a time. Ah, amen to that. Thank you so much for your wisdom, your dedication to changing the lives of so many children and people. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And to our listeners, you, we cannot get these positive messages out in the world. And even though some of these things may be hard to hear, you get to be part of that positive change by getting the word out there, being part of the change and doing that in the world. So please subscribe, share any comments that you have. Feel free to tag both myself and Christy. Any questions you have, we'd be happy to answer them. And until we connect again, live your spa life. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Your host and spa life curator, Diane Halfman, wants you to know you can download her free guide to start living your spa life right now. Go to dianehalfman.com and click on the link for the nine secrets to step into your spa life. Now, live your spa life where accomplishment and harmony coexist.